Welcome to the Bethesda Church Podcast. We're so glad you've joined us today. If you'd like to contribute financially to this ministry, you can do so at BethesdaChurch.tv slash give and simply select the giving option that works best for you. Thanks again for joining us. We hope you enjoy today's message. Super honored to welcome our guest speaker we have today. He is a longtime friend of PC and PK, and we are so happy to have him. He serves as the state youth director here in West Virginia for the Church of God. So if you guys would stand to your feet, and let's give him a big Bethesda welcome to J.D. Wall. Thank you so very much for such a kind welcome. As he said, I serve as the Youth and Discipleship Director for the Church of God in West Virginia. Uh, Some things you may not know about me is I'm from West Virginia. Uh, This is my home state. And so... uh, I had the awesome privilege uh, at the last General Assembly, uh, August, uh, almost a year and a half ago, to have the opportunity to come back and serve in my home state. And so uh, when they say longtime friends with uh, Pastor Chad and Pastor Karen, uh, that is true. Uh, We go back a long way, uh, so far, a lot farther than Pastor Chad and I would like to admit, because it'll make us feel a little bit old, but... Way back to days when we were campers ourselves at camp, and then we worked camp together is where I really got to know him and his brother, Scotty, very, very well, along with a mutual friend of ours that I think you guys know about by the name of Joe Dobbins, and we all had an opportunity 20-some years ago uh, to uh, work uh, West Virginia Church of God Youth Camp, something that I'm still very passionate about, uh, thus the reason uh, that I am in this role, and I'm super excited uh, to be with you this morning. Uh, Just a couple of quick things about me. This is uh, only my second preaching engagement. Usually I travel on the weekends, but about six weeks ago, if y'all can pull that picture up, about six weeks ago on Wednesday, my life kind of radically changed uh, as I welcomed, uh, me and my wife welcomed twins to... Our family, uh, that handsome man that looks like his mother, praise God, holding the babies is my 13-year-old son. Uh, It's a story that I'll get into a little bit with this morning's message. But uh, so uh, this morning, uh, just be uh, patient with me as I am on what I call twin brain um, this morning. And so... uh, Uh, I'm a former basketball coach, right? So uh, when you have three, you have to change your philosophy, right? You can't go man-to-man anymore. You have to go zone defense, right? And so uh, it kind of changes things a little bit. They were a little bit premature, as twins often are too, so we're on a strict feeding schedule. So if you could do nothing else this morning, pray for my wife as she handles at least one of those feeding sessions, possibly two depending on how quickly I get out of here today uh, on her own. So she would covet your prayers for sure as she tackles uh, the two of them this morning. But I would like to continue on um, kind of in the series 
Uh, Pastor Chad had asked me to kind of finish off the series that he has been doing entitled Sugar Daddy. And so what I did is kind of insert a message that I feel like the Lord has given me um, seasonally for, for the church in general. And we've kind of adopted it into that. And I know this whole series has been related, I think, up until this point about, uh, about, about finances and, and, and giving and how you know, the expectation is, is that we expect God to do things without us having to do anything in return. And I'm going to go along that theme, except I'm going to shift a little bit from giving and finances. And I want to talk to you this morning about service. What it means to be a servant. Why is it important that we should serve the Lord? Why, why is that significant? In today's culture, that's a very prevalent question, isn't it, amongst people, especially those who do not believe. Why is it essential that we would even serve the Lord? Or to take it a step further this morning, why would we serve the local body? Why is it important? Why would Pastor Chad on every Sunday have a video that says, we would like for you to get involved. Here are the next steps in our church, and we want you to not only grow in your faith in, in, in the Lord Jesus, but we want you to get involved and be part of what we do at Bethesda Church. Why is that important? And so I'm going to take you to John chapter 2, and we're going to look at Jesus' very, very first miracle in Scripture. We're going to look at the first 11 verses. If you know anything there is at all about the Bible, you'll know about this story. This is the wedding in Cana. But before we get to that Scripture really quick, I just want to talk to you about a couple of things. In, in, the, in the four Gospels, there's a bunch of similarities between the four Gospels, and there's also some, sometimes, and amongst the four Gospels, the, the, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are some things that are distinguishably different between those passages of Scripture. And outside of John, you'll find that the first three passages of Scripture, when they're pertaining to Jesus, they, they go through either his genealogy and, and then what we traditionally call the Christmas story and talk about Jesus' foundation and his beginning. And, and there's a reason, right, with, with new converts. Uh, when, when I was a pastor, I always told new converts, right, that you should start reading the first four Gospels, right, because you learn about Jesus. And then you go to the Old Testament, you learn about the need for Jesus. And then you pick up Acts, and you learn about why the church is the extension of Jesus. Amen? And so those four Gospels are very similar, but John is a little bit different. First of all, we find out that John is a little more descriptive. He's... He's a little more in detail when it comes to stories. I'll give you one really quick. There, there's that scene, the Last Supper, right? And, and, and Judas is going to betray Jesus. And all the other Gospels talk about it and all those things. But John gives us a little more detail, right? They said Judas did not care, right, when, when the lady lavished the, the perfume on Jesus. He, he didn't really care about the poor, John says, right? He says he was a thief, Right? He stole. Right, we, we get some more detail from John. John is the same way in the beginning. In John chapter 1, he doesn't focus on, you can look this up, he doesn't focus on really the, the roots of Jesus. He talks about putting Jesus in his proper place. He talks about, if you and I could use this word, the hermeneutics, right, of how we should view the world through Jesus. Right, In the beginning was the word. The word was with God, and the word was God. Right, He sets Jesus in his proper place. And then in John chapter 2, he, he bypasses the Christmas story. He, he doesn't do the, the 12-year-old Jesus who was Downs all of the, the scribes and all those things, he moves immediately to the earthly ministry of Jesus. And it's in this little story that we can learn a few things about 
our need and necessity to serve. It says, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding, and when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said unto him, They have no wine. Jesus said unto her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Let me stop right there. In our culture today, if a son refers to his mom and he uses the words woman, how many of you know in our culture, if you're a son or a husband, I would not prefer that. I would strongly discourage you from having that approach with your significant other or with your mom. But in Jesus' time, it was actually a term of endearment to recognize or acknowledge a female during his culture was actually a term of endearment. And so when he acknowledges his mother, he's actually paying her honor. He says, his mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. And Jesus said unto them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came. But the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said unto him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior, you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Will you join me for prayer this morning? Heavenly Father, I just come before you this morning. And God, I empty myself of my own wants, wishes, desires, ambitions, and goals. And as I stand before you and this your people, an empty vessel, I pray that your precious Holy Spirit would anoint me from the top of my head to the soles of my feet, that I might preach your word with power and conviction, and it might be a word that goes beyond the flesh and beyond the soul and attach itself to the spirits of your people, radically changing them from the inside out, from glory unto glory, by the power of your presence. And the power of your word. And all God's people said, Amen. You see, it is here that Jesus' ministry begins. There's some significant things. How many of you know that Jesus was always intentional with everything that he did? There's a passage, the story, story, uh, passage in the Bible, a story in the Bible that always amazes me. When it came time for Jesus to choose those who were intimate with him, the scripture says that he prayed all through the night. And then he chose who might be his disciples. How many of you know there was intentionality there? How many of you know that you and I, we should pray and discern about those that we have intimate relationships with? We should be choosy and intentional with that. Jesus is always intentional with it. And I think there are some magnificent things in this passage of Scripture. There are some things that we don't know about this wedding that makes it even more significant to us. First of all, we don't know who the wedding is for. We don't know who's in attendance. We don't know. As a matter of fact, from the Scripture, what we can gather is this was just somebody's wedding. It wasn't somebody significant in society. It wasn't a leader of the times. It was just somebody's wedding. We also don't know how Jesus ends up being there. We don't know that was it his mom who was originally invited, and then she invites Jesus, and then Jesus invites the disciples. We don't know how we got there. All that we know is there is some wedding of some people, and Jesus and Mary and the disciples end up being there. 
On top of that, there's, it's focused in a city that's almost mirrors, if you will, the birth of Jesus. How many of you know outside of Bethlehem being the city of David, it wasn't a significant city as far as that was concerned outside of the fact that it was the city of David, if you will. But out in the fields on the outskirts of town, it is there that Jesus' birth is announced to a bunch of shepherds, which were the lowest of the lows of that society. It is there that the angel appears unto Jesus, appears unto the, unto the shepherds and tells them, born this day in the city of David, is the Savior. He, he appears, the angels appear unto a bunch of nobodies in the middle of nowhere to tell them that the greatest moment in human history is happening. Here it is that Jesus begins his earthly ministry and he's not in Jerusalem. He's not in the centerpiece of the town. He's not hanging out with kings and kingdoms. He's hanging out with a bunch of, of nobodies in the middle of nowhere in a city that has no other significance until this moment in time when Jesus shows up on the scene. And it's here that Jesus begins. He does not begin his ministry. I want you to notice this. He does not begin his ministry with a great sermon. He does not begin his ministry with a great song. He, he does not begin his ministry with, with a great introduction like I had this morning. There's, there's, no, there's nothing to announce him on the scene. As a matter of fact, had Mary not said unto him, Hey, they don't have any more wine. No one outside of the disciples would have even known that Jesus was on the scene. And it's here that he begins his earthly ministry in the middle of nowhere with a bunch of people who aren't the, the best of the best of society. It's in this obscure place with these obscure people that Jesus begins his ministry. And on top of that, Jesus is not going to use himself as the centerpiece. He's not even going to use the disciples. The disciples that he prayed all through the night to choose, he won't even use them. But instead, the centerpiece of Jesus' first miracle will be no named servants people who otherwise would not even know they existed until their wine ran out and their food ran out they are the waiters if you will of this wedding forgotten working hard sweating and it's there that Jesus begins his earthly ministry. There's a few things that we can learn about that. The fact that he's choosing servants to begin. That's, we, we can learn that, first of all, we find the definition. Do you know that we find the definition for ministry from this passage of Scripture? Because the word ministry, right, in the Greek means to wait on tables. That's what it means. And we get that definition from this passage of Scripture because Jesus will begin his earthly ministry not with kings or kingdoms, not with people who have great names, not great speakers, not great musicians, not talented individuals, not people with degrees, but he will begin his ministry with servants. You know what that teaches me? That teaches me that for you and I, it all begins with service. It all begins with service. You first of all, you must serve the Lord. If you're visiting this morning and you don't know who Jesus is and you don't know why this crazy guy is getting all excited and his voice is going on all of these different tangents, then you don't understand this morning that there is something and someone you could know that can fundamentally change everything about you. And his name is Jesus. 
And you don't serve him out of duty or responsibility. You serve him because you fall hopelessly and unashamedly in love with him from the moment that he touches your life and changes you forever. And you spend your life giving back to him and to his people. You must serve the Lord. That's why it's important to serve the Lord because he came, right? He came not to be served, but to serve others. He said, I did not come, right, for name recognition. Come on, folks. Jesus was in heaven. He had all the glory he needed. He did not come here for some unsubscribed glory. The Bible says for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Who's the joy? You're the joy. I'm the joy. The worst sinner in the world's the joy. Uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It begins with serving him. But let's go a step further because he's going to use the disciples time and time again. Listen, they're going to, be, they're going to mess up. They're going to jockey for power. They're going to get ahead of themselves. Come on, they're going to get nicknames, right? Cursing Peter. Doubting Thomas. Come on, they're going to have all kinds of nicknames, right? Uh, Peter's got the same problem I have sometimes, right? I have, this, I have this disease where often my mouth runs faster than my mind. Then my mind catches up, right? And by then I'm already eating the soles of my 12 size shoes, right? They're not going to be perfect. They're not going to be a picture of perfection. He's going to begin to use them. And not only must we serve the Lord, but let me tell you something this morning. This is why it's paramount that you do. You must serve others. You will never be more like Christ than when you serve others. He is the picture of serving others. The scripture says over and over again in Isaiah that he put himself down. It says he said not a word. He said not a word. He said not a word. He could have called at any moment and legions of angels could have come and helped him carry the cross or take the cross away or demolish all of the people who were putting him on the cross. But he did not do that. Why? Because Jesus is a picture of serving others. You have to serve the Lord. But you've got to serve the local church. You've got to serve others. You say, oh, but I'm not talented. I'll never preach a sermon. Listen to me. That's why Jesus is so wise and so infinite. He tells him one time, he says, if you get a cup of cold water in my name, it's the same as if you've done it unto me. You know what that means? That means you can bake cookies. And you can give them out to young people. And you can be the picture of Jesus and serve others because you'd never know how somebody might fall in love with Jesus because of a cookie. You can give an ornament for a Christmas tree and it can be given to somebody who's a shut-in and you can share the love of Christ and the joy of Christmas with somebody who would otherwise miss it just because you dedicated to give an ornament. It's not about preaching sermons. It's not about those things. If you do it unto him, it's all about service. But you see, the narrative changes here. It focuses on the servants. And as obscure <laughs> as the servants are, and I trust you, they're not named. The wedding party's not named. Nobody knows what's going on in this story. But then the picture shifts. Hmm. The picture shifts to something else that would have been lost in the background of the wedding. It shifts to six water pots. Don't worry, I didn't get the water from here. I did this at one church and the pastor, I came out and put it on the stage before service and the pastor uh, there almost had a heart attack. He said, is that the water out of our faucets? <laughs> no pastor, it's not. 
There are six water pots in the story. Water pots. We know a few things from Scripture about this. And maybe you didn't pick it up in it, but we can learn from the, from the context of Scripture. We can learn a couple things. First of all, it just spells it out. We can learn, first of all, that that's not a clear indication of what's going on here because these water pots were huge. 20 to 30 gallons apiece. Now, because of their use, we know they weren't ornate, they weren't highly decorated. As a matter of fact, other than the function that they served, which we'll talk about in just a minute, nobody would have even known, after their brief little five-minute introduction to them, nobody would have even known they were there or if they were gone. Six water pots. They were huge. 20 to 30 gallons. To put that in perspective, your water cooler at your work's about a gallon. These were massive pieces of work. Now, that's important for us to understand this because Jesus is going to tell them to fill the water pots. I want you to understand something about ministry and about service. Service and ministry will always be hard work because here's the thing. When Jesus tells the servants, fill them all the way to the top, how many of you know in their time they didn't have a water faucet that they could go turn on? No water hose. No fire hydrant. As a matter of fact, they're going to have to run to the well time and time and time and time and time again. They're going to have to run to the well, buckets at a time, bring those buckets of water back and fill up the water pots. How many of you know they got sweaty? They were already the working crew of the wedding. Now Jesus is making them work double time, right? Come on, where do we get the notion that ministry will be easy? Why is the church always upset that the world is believing things that we don't believe? And why do we get so upset on Facebook and other stuff when people lose their mind? Come on, I, don't, I didn't come here this morning to get in trouble, right? But when, but when a woman wants to be a man and a man wants to be a woman, listen, you don't have to put that on Facebook to understand we got some problems. We got issues. There's some significant things that are going on in the world right now. Why is the church, it's almost as if we're frantic and right, oh, oh no, sinners are sinning. Come on. It should be the expectation. Why do we get so terrified about that? Why do we get scared about it? Ministry will be hard work. There will be people that come to your events because they just want your free stuff. They're not interested in your religion. They're not interested in Jesus. They're not interested in being part. You know what I say? Serve them anyway. It may take five. It may take 10 times. It may take two years. It may take one, something blowing up in their life and them not having anywhere else to turn around. It doesn't matter. I've come by to tell you this morning, in any way that you can, serve anyway. You need to serve at your job. You need to serve at your school. You need to serve everywhere you can serve. Because people need Jesus. I don't know about you this morning, but I need Jesus. They were large. It was going to be lots of hard work. But the next thing we know is that the water was filthy. Ah, oh, Pastor J.D., how do you know that the water was filthy? Well, because it tells me what these big six stone pots were used for. They were for the manner of the purification of the Jews. In other words, this is what happened. Everybody came and washed their feet and hands in the water pots. Six big old community baths. Filthy bath water. I love all of y'all, but you can imagine how nasty it would be this morning if I had met you in the foyer and said, take off your shoes and your socks or your sandals or whatever else, and I want you to, to wash your feet in this tub. If we did that for everybody in this room, how many of you know, that'd be a pretty nasty bucket of water. In Jesus' time, they walked around in open-toed shoes 
in the middle of feces and stagnant water all over the place. So you can only imagine how much nastier the water was. It's nasty, filthy, disgusting water. Now here's what's amazing to me. Jesus does not tell them empty it, right? Come on, think like me. If you were up, right, and you were going to try to give somebody something to drink, how many of you know, I hope nobody in here would choose, let me go get you a glass of my bath water. Jesus does not tell them to do that. As a matter of fact, he does not tell them to him. He tells them, I want you to feel it. Now, here's what's amazing, and sometimes we lose it because we don't understand this, but this is what Jesus is going to do. He says, I want you to take where there's already nasty bath water, and I want you to add to it nasty creek water. I said creek because we're in West Virginia. Everybody understands nasty creek water in West Virginia, right? That's what it is, the well water, right? It ain't got no filtration like on your fridge during their time. It's nasty creek water. So Jesus is taking nasty creek water and adding it to nasty bath water. And then he's going to ask the servant of all people. And he says, and the scripture here says nobody else knew where it came from. But the scripture puts in parentheses, I love this, but the servants knew. Why is that important that the servants knew? Because I can imagine that as on his way to take that drink to the guy who hired him and is going to pay him for his job, I can imagine that he stopped by. I'm just thinking like me. If it was me, I'm going to stop by, look at my wife in the eye and say, I'm about to get fired. (laughs) I'm taking wine, supposedly wine, to the man who's going to pay me for the job that I've done this week at this wedding, and, and he thinks it's wine, and I know that it's nasty bath water mixed with a little bit of nasty creek water. It's filthy. It's disgusting. It says nobody else knew in the place, but but, but the servant knew. And it's in this point that I realized something when it comes to this, is that not only are we the servant in the story, but we're also the water pot in the story. Let me, just, let me just elaborate for just a little bit because may, maybe perhaps you don't realize this. and so I think sometimes as Christians we're victims of this. But we, we think that after we've been saved for a while or, or we're doing what God's called us to do, sometimes we, we, we lose touch with the reality that we once at one time we were undone and we didn't know Jesus. And see, the water pot symbolizes two things for every believer. First of all, the water pot is a picture of salvation. What do you mean, J.D.? How is that a picture? How can dirty water? Because, see, you were lost and undone without Jesus. And then Jesus came by, and where there was filthiness and nastiness and all your own desires and your own ambitions, he came by, and he put a little bit of his living water on top of where all the nasty, filthy water was, and somehow Jesus' little bit of of holy water and living water was added to where it was nasty, and all of a sudden, everything that was nasty and ugly and unpure became as new wine. This is a picture of salvation. I am the water pot in the story because at one time I I, I was given over to desires of the flesh and I did things that I should not have done even though I was a PK and I knew better. I walked away from the faith and thank goodness someday Jesus came by and he introduced me to his salvation and once where there was dirty, filthy, nasty water became new and beautiful and glorious wine. 
But then Jesus says, I want you to fill it up to the brim. In other words, I want you to fill it to overflow. And not only is this a picture of salvation, but this is the picture of what the Holy Spirit does in our life. Because here's the picture I want to paint for you. That first servant, right? He, he's a little nervous, isn't he? he? He He's carrying that first cup of, uh, of, of dirty creek water mixed with dirty bath water over to the man who is responsible for paying him for the work that he has done. And he brings it over. And I can imagine that somewhere in the root there, as he's shaking and nervous and walking through the crowd and the people dancing, that a little bit of that water that he thinks is dirty bath water and dirty creek water. But what he doesn't know is that whatever Jesus does because comes like wine. Wine is a picture of the Holy Spirit. It's good and fresh and a little bit gets on him. A little bit spills on him. Maybe a little bit spills on his family. Maybe a bunch spills on all the people in, in, in the wedding. And that, See, that's the picture of the Holy Spirit. The people don't need another sermon. They don't need another church service. What they need is a blood-bought believer full of Jesus who takes Jesus with them to their work, to their school, everywhere they go. And a picture of that overflows into other people. Picture salvation the Holy Spirit but it's deeper than that you see obedience you see that whole overflow thing is John 7 and 38 right out of your bosom the word belly is it's a bad English translation it really means bosom or what you and I might commonly refer to as the spirit Jesus said out of your spirit will flow rivers of living water Man, we mess that up sometimes because we think that that is some outward experience, but that's a day-by-day walk when we show other people that it's not about us. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. It's about whom I serve. But you have to be obedient. The only explanation they're given is Mary looks at them and says, do whatever he says to do. And the scripture says, and they filled them up. You know, we focus on the wrong things in scripture. On Noah, we always focus on, right? We always focus on, and Noah found grace in the eyes of God. Listen, I am thankful for grace. Grace saves us. Grace, grace sustains us. And grace favors us. I am thankful for grace. Amen? But you know the most powerful part of the story of Noah is not Noah found grace in the eyes of God. It's a little simple phrase that most of the time we read it and we don't even think about it. It said, and Noah built an ark. Why is that so powerful, Pastor J.D.? Well, let's see. He's in the middle of the desert, hundreds of miles from from the closest body of water. You do realize that, right? Hundreds of miles from the closest body of water, he's gonna build an ark. He's also gonna build an ark in a place where there's never been rain. The Bible says it had not rained yet upon the earth. They've never seen rain. He's 100 miles from water, and he's going to build a boat anyway. The most powerful part of Noah is he did what God called him to do. Listen to me. That's why you have to serve the Lord. That's why you have to serve the local body. You have to do what God's called you to do. We got to start asking, oh, if I don't do what God's called me to do, will I go to hell? I don't know how to answer that question for you, but I will tell you this. It's quite possible somebody else goes to hell because you did not do what God asked you to do. No, I built an ark. Servants who didn't know anything about Jesus. He has no reputation. He's not known as a prophet. He's not known of any of those things. They did what Jesus told them to do. You see, to be obedient, you have to be willing to listen. Revelation says over and over again, he who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit of the Lord, right, is saying. you got to be able to listen, but then you also have to follow through and do what God has asked you 
to do. You see, they have to take it to the master. (laughs) They have to take it to the master. There are times when being obedient to Jesus is easy and makes sense. Come on. It's easy and it makes sense. I knew I was called to this role because I love young people. I love youth camp. I love seeing a teenager's life be turned upside down by the call of God. Love it. Love to see teenagers sing. Love to see them play instruments. Love to see all of those things. Sometimes it's easy. But it's a whole different thing when, when he first calls you into this work and he says, I want you to move 1,400 miles away from everything you've ever known. Then it's a little tougher, isn't it, to follow Jesus? He moved me to Grand Forks, North Dakota. I'll never forget it. My, my first assignment was in what the Church of God calls the NCR, two, the two Dakotas and Montana. And I'll never forget, I was on my way. The, it's a long story. I won't take up all the time, but God had already communicated to me and my wife that we were going to go out. We just didn't know where. And we know, but, you know, as a good husband, right, I'm on my way to tell my wife about this, right, about this promise, about this opportunity, right, to, to go out there and serve. And, and, you know, as a good husband, come on, I, I Googled it. Google Grand Forks, North Dakota. There's a problem when you Google Grand Forks, North Dakota. You know what it'll tell you? It'll say the coldest place in the continental United States. It'll tell you you've got to go to Alaska to find a place in the United States that's colder than Grand Forks, North Dakota. That's not a strong selling point. It's difficult. There'll be other times that he calls you to do radical things that don't even make sense. See, because perhaps maybe you have a child. And when you have that child, he, he brings so much joy to your life. As a matter of fact, you, you name him Nathaniel Isaac Wall because it means Yahweh has given us laughter because your wife has a dream that he's just going to smile and laugh. And I can tell you that my 13-year-old son has lived up to his name. He's a joy to be around. And see, not too long after that, you can lose a child to miscarriage. Seven weeks on, on the day of the first, on the morning of the first ultrasound. In the process of losing that child, you can go through tests and you can pay most of your life savings and almost all of your retirement out over the process of the next 10 years to, to have test upon test done and, 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 and procedure after procedure. And, 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 and one of those last stops at Indiana, the doctor with, with callous. And without feeling, can look at your wife and you and can say, go home and hug the one that you have. I wouldn't even recommend you spending money on anything else. Sometimes two infertile people meet and want to have kids. Go home and hug the one that you have because he shouldn't have happened. And it's never going to happen. And you can go through the brokenness, yeah, the brokenness of that. We can talk big faith all we want to, but we live in a real world. Jason Crabb wrote a song one time and said, sometimes I cry. Because sometimes it hurts. You can go through the brokenness of that. 
And then November of last year, your wife can wake you up in the middle of her sleep and can say, you know, there was a prophecy given over us one time that said, go home and get the nursery ready. And she said, I feel convicted because we didn't do that. She said, I feel like the Lord is going to give me a second chance to do that. Am I crazy? And I said, well, there's a reason that Peter said we are peculiar people. By the way, peculiar means insane. Yeah. I said, what does that look like? She says, I don't know yet. Nearly a month later, she wakes, wakes me up again, and she says, I know what we need to do. We need to buy a crib. Now, never mind you that that 13-year-old boy that you saw in that picture for 10 years without fail every night prayed, God, give me twins, a baby brother and a baby sister. So we go through the whole complicated process of how do we put this crib together and, 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 and our son be super excited and, and explain to him that we don't want him to lose his faith, but we also don't, you, we, you know, all the difficulty. Come on, uh, pastors live in the real world too. And you buy a crib and you put it in there and, and your son has questions and without wavering, your wife looks at him and says, it hasn't happened yet, but it's going to. She buys it in January. She puts it together in February and the middle of March. We're at an ultrasound. It's not on the belly. Ultrasound. And with almost no warning, that technician says, the first sack definitely has a fetus. I can't see the second sack. Excuse me? Let's back that up a little bit. The what now? And we get the joy over Easter to... Film videos of us telling each of our families that at 43, that's me, and at 38, that's her, we're going to have a baby when for 10 years doctors said it would not happen, but God said, watch. They take us back to the room, you know, and they sell the things, you know. It may not be viable. There may not be another baby in there. So, you know, we don't know if it's going to be twins yet or not. We got to look at that. And they give you all the things right. They tell you it's, it's awful at your age. Twins are, twins are terrible anytime. That's certainly awful at my wife's age. You know, every woman loves to hear that, right? Four weeks later, they go in and almost as nonchalantly as the other technician had done it four weeks before, she said, Oh, yeah, there's definitely two babies here. No warning. No anticipation. On October the 18th, not one, but two healthy babies. Noah David Wall and Abigail Marie Wall. Just as my son had prayed, twins, a baby brother, and a baby sister. You see, something happens when we're obedient if they can come to the instruments. Something happens, as Scripture says, that when we're obedient, something happens. And it's found in verse 11. It says, and, and he manifested his glory. It's what it says, the word, word there says, manifested his glory. And the disciples believed. Now, you, you hear a word, and sometimes I'm big on word studies. And so I wanted to look at the word manifest because I thought, well, that just means shows up, right? But it's so much deeper than that because the word manifest there means, doesn't mean show up. It means this. It means to step out of eternity and become personal. Hmm. 
Do you understand we're the only faith that believes that, that the person who made everything wants to become personal with us? You understand no other religion does that? Not Judaism, not Hinduism, not Buddhism, not Islam. Listen, the disciples in Mark chapter 2 wanted to hear Jesus pray. Why did they want to hear Jesus pray? Because he prayed in a way in which he was intimate with the Father and the disciples as Jews had never heard that. Now, Jesus, this word is used again in John Manifest. And it's the same root word here, to step out of eternity and become personal. And, and John would put it this way in that passage of Scripture. In John 14 and 21, he says, He who loves me obeys my commandments, and I will manifest myself. Step out of eternity and become personal. Do you know how powerful that is? Can you give me just a few more minutes? Wait, oh, man, look at that. Big old bright 10 I was really scared about this first service. I got the gift of long-windedness. It's terrified. You see, it becomes really personal when you're deaf and Jesus walks by one day and puts his hands on your ears and all of a sudden you could not hear and all of a sudden you hear everything. It becomes personal to you. When you are blind and crying out on the backside. And people said, shh, be quiet, shut up. Jesus, don't want to be bothered with you. And you cried all the louder. And Jesus comes by. And where blinded eyes were, now can see everything. When you're so injured, when the angel comes down and stirs up the water, but you can't get to the water. You have no way to get to the water. But instead, I love that. Isn't that great? Gee, he can't get to the water, so Jesus just comes to him. It's a picture of Jesus. He just walks over to him and says, you don't need nobody to get into the water for you. Rise up and be healed. How many of you know it becomes personal to you? When you're chained to the graveyard because you're absolutely outside of your mind and nobody wants to deal with you and Jesus walks by someday. And don't just tell one, but tells legions of devils, get out. How many of you know it becomes personal to you? But here's what I love about that. He becomes the first ever evangelist. So scripture says he goes around telling everybody and everybody believed because they knew what he was. And then Jesus showed up and all of a sudden what he was was no more. And he became new. How many of you know it's not only personal to the man who got healed, but it's personal to every person who hears the story after that. There's just something about walking it out and Jesus showing up. I love it in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, the first five verses of the Bible repeat themselves all over again, right? There was void, there was nothing, the Spirit of God moved, and all of a sudden there was everything. Jesus likes to do this. He likes to take nothing and make it everything. How do you know, Pastor J.D., that he likes to take nothing and make it everything? I got up this morning. I'm sleep deprived. Hair everywhere. Bags under my eyes. Making bottles in my sleep. And I looked in the mirror and I saw a clear picture of a nobody. 
that Jesus made a somebody. Why? Because you're talented, J.D.? No, you'd be surprised how much talent I don't have. All because you just were in the right place at the right time? No, honey, it don't work that way. All because you're always super-duper whopper Christian? No, honey, I'm hardly ever super-duper whopper Christian. Why is it? Because it's because God showed up. Uh, when In moments when I wasn't myself, He showed up anyhow. When I was faithless, He was faithful. When I didn't know what to pray, He prayed through me and over me. Listen to me this morning. Because I've served, God showed up. And when he does, you don't wonder if it was him or not. When they come in and say, they put two pictures up on the x-ray machine and they say six months ago, there was cancer here, 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 and here. But here's the scan I took of you yesterday and there's no cancer here, 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 here. He steps out of eternity and becomes personal. Everything changes. If you're saved in here this morning, do you remember? I could take you to the Baston Church of God. I could take you to the spot in that sanctuary where I kneeled down as a teenager who not, not a year and a half before that I stood in the back of the room my dad was a PK went through a bitter divorce and at 15 I looked at my buddy in the back of the church with my dad preaching under the power of the Holy Spirit and I looked at my friend and said that man is a fool he wouldn't preach like that if he knew what the people in this community was saying about him now that man's my hero because you know what I realized he knew everything everybody was saying, but he determined his validity would come in who Christ thought he was and not who anybody else thought he was. When I knelt down there, and for the first time as a teenager, I let go of all the bitterness and all the angry. And he who made me stepped out of eternity and became personal. Every disciples watch a bunch of sweaty servants take dirty creek water and mix it with bath water and it becomes the greatest tasting wine ever known to mankind it says and they believed in him you gotta serve the Lord honey serve him anyway when they could care less what you're doing serve him anyway I've preached to three and I've preached to hundreds you know what I found it's the same anointing you want to know why because it's not about the crowds it's not about the moments it's not about the opportunities it's about him
we're all control freaks. It'd be nice if we could. We don't get to count the cost. We just got to serve him. And how do you serve him? You serve him by serving others. There's just something awesome about when God says, here's what happens. He'll give you a little thing, and you're obedient, and you do it. You know what he'll do? He'll give you greater things. And then all of a sudden in your life, you're walking along, and then he'll just do things just because he's God. Anybody in here ever had God just do something just because he's God? He just showed up on your doorstep and did something. You weren't necessarily asking for it. It was something awesome. He just did it because he was God, and he can. You know what we need right now in a world where people are confused about everything from, from their identity to their gender to about whether Jesus is real or not. We don't need more sermons. We don't need more music. We don't need greater churches or better furniture or any of those things. What we need is for Jesus to show up. And he shows up when we do what he tells us to do. You can stand with me. 1009, hot dog. have witnessed another miracle akin to water becoming wine. We need Jesus to show up. You need Jesus to show up in your house for your spouse and for your children and for your grandchildren. You need Jesus to show up when you teach classes here. When you do your small groups, you need Jesus to show up in your small group. You need Jesus. I don't know, baby. I need Jesus seriously at Walmart sometimes. He's got to show up. I'm not good at checking out my groceries. Kroger's even worse. That woman's sitting there screaming at me. Everything's in a bag. I don't know what you want from me. I need Jesus. You got to show up right here. telling you Jesus will do things when you show up listen if my wife came in here this morning listen my wife I so outkicked my coverage listen when my wife and I walk into a room people look at her and then they look at me and then they look at her and then they look at me and then they look at her and then they look at me and they think he's got to have money nothing else makes makes sense talent when you hear your 12 year old son say God I don't want to play the drums well let me just point somebody to you I could pretend that's because I'm a good father my wife would laugh it's because God is good young man several years ago you played at junior teen talent you didn't know I had other assignments I walked in the back and I cried like a baby your joy my man and your exuberance and I knew your story and I just cried like a baby I ministered to him and in all my times of doing this I've never seen anybody more excited to win camper of the year I do camp all over again for that five seconds bowed and every eye closed if you're here this morning please altar workers come it's never been about me please it's never been about me never will be about me it's all about him 
You're here this morning, you have no idea why this crazy guy's been sweating and stomping and screaming. It's because you don't have a you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. You don't know him as your personal Lord and Savior. Don't know him as your personal Lord and Savior. You've never invited Jesus into your heart. I don't want to miss this moment if that happens to be you this morning. It's your first time guest. Maybe it's your first time ever in church. Maybe it's your first time in years. But I don't want to miss an opportunity for you this morning to accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. So if that's you with nobody looking around this morning for the sanctity of the moment, is if that's you, it's not my desire to belittle you or embarrass you, but if that's you this morning and you do not know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, would you slip your hand up this morning? I don't even know where they're at. Now we just need Jesus to show up because it looks like this to the enemy, but Jesus is in the midst of it, and then somehow it becomes wine because Jesus shows up. So the second altar call is very simple. You need Jesus to show up. What do you mean, Pastor J.D.? Maybe you got a bad health report. You need Jesus to show up. Maybe your kids are living away from Jesus. You need Jesus to show up. Maybe you need him to heal your marriage. You need Jesus to show up. Maybe there's a situation at work where you can't find any favor and it seems like everywhere you go, it's working against you. You need Jesus to show up. Maybe you need a financial miracle. Maybe you need Jesus to show up. Maybe there's a young couple like us that have been told by the doctors, give up, you'll never have children. Uh, Honey, all you need is Jesus to show up. I don't got to ask nobody to read about it online. I've lived it. All you need is Jesus to show up. So the altar call is very simple this morning. You can be honest before the Lord and forget about what somebody else might think about you. We always think the altar is a sign of weakness. Honey, everywhere the altar is in Scripture is a sign of strength. The prophets of Baal are destroyed on an altar. 
It's a place of strength. This morning, the altar call was simple. You need Jesus to show up. As they begin to play and sing, would you meet me or one of these altar workers down here? If you need Jesus to show up. Thanks for listening to this week's message from Bethesda Church. We hope you'll stay connected by following us online. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and our website, BethesdaChurch.tv. Thank you for joining us and have a great day.